Uh, I was born in a small town called Masjid Suleiman in southern Iran. I was born in Syria. I was born in Hamburg, Germany. I was born in Congo. I was born in Tanzania in a refugee camp. I was born in Singapore. Guatemala City. I'm from Ireland. I was born in Thailand refugee camp. I was camp. born in Mumbai. India. I was born in Vientiane, Laos. I was born in England. I was born in Costa Rica. Welcome to Many Roads to Hear, bringing the voices of immigrants, refugees, and asylum seekers to a national conversation about migration and identity. I'm your host, Caitlin Dwyer. It took Dr. Elizabeth Flores through high school, college, and medical school to really understand herself. Born in America, raised in Mexico, her identity is wrapped up in both places. As it turned out, the physical United States was never her final destination. Stephanie Valance has her story. When people ask her where she's from, Elizabeth Flores has an answer. I'm from here. Where are you from? And she is from here, meaning here in the United States. I was born in Santa Ana, California. That is where I was born. I never lived there. Um, I actually grew up in Mexico. Elizabeth is the daughter of Mexican immigrants. She was born in California, but soon after moved to Mexico, where she spent most of her childhood and where all of her siblings were born. When her family relocated to California when she was in middle school, Elizabeth didn't speak much English and was reluctant to leave Mexico. I am very comfortable in Mexico. People will probably pick up that I am not from there and will maybe even say something or think something or think of me as a tourist if I try. So I try not to sometimes and I try not, but you still are perceived that way because either people know or you're visiting from outside. So you're not from there, really, but, but I'm comfortable there. I know the language, and I can get along. I love the food, and I know, and I have yeah. family there. And I, I am from here also, and I'm comfortable here. And I can turn that other side on or not, depending. Or I just, or, And I'm more comfortable being that, even in settings where I feel like they may not even know what I'm talking about. But I went from the era of not from here or not from there, like the civil rights movement era where the like Latino students in California, like all over the place were feeling like they were not from the, from Mexico and not from here. There was a lot of discrimination in places. And you, especially if you were never lived in Mexico, I mean, at least I lived there. So um, it made it, it makes it easier. But if you've never lived there and you're like, if people here tell you, you're not from here. And they're like, well, well, I'm not from there either. I've gone from that to like, I am from there and I am from here. I am from North America. Elizabeth's story begins in North America, where her parents worked in California. My mom was 18 years old when I was born, and my father brought her here uh, before I was born. So my father was, I think, from uh, his early teens or 17, 18, probably, he had already immigrated to California and was working, was established working um, as a I don't know what he did initially, but I know that he was doing quite a uh, shipping and delivery, trucking. Um, so he worked all his life in California. So I think he was out visiting Mexico when he met my mom. They married and he brought her here. And in that time, there was uh, amnesty where she, my mom was able to come and get a social security number and get employment. 
uh, legally. So she's always been able to file taxes and use a social security number. And I, and I said, mom, you didn't become a resident until later. How did you do that? She says, oh, well, you know, back in those days, you, you could, it was like a legal pathway to employment in a way. And so she called it, she calls it amnesty where um, they would give you a valid social a number so you could have employment at least. Maybe you couldn't do all the other things a citizen would, but she could work. Um, so both my parents were working. Once I was born, she didn't really like it in California. I think she was, she didn't have any family. And um, so she ended up going back by herself to Mexico. So she really ended up raising all of me and my siblings by herself. Eventually, Elizabeth's mother took the kids and moved to Mexico. Her parents remained married, but her dad stayed in California. Her father worked and sent money to his family. He would visit them in Mexico every so often, but when he came to visit, he was volatile, controlling, and often abusive. When Elizabeth was nine, her father became suspicious that his wife was seeing another man. He basically said, you can't live in your home anymore. So that was like the most, like, if you want to call any kind of tragedy or uh, defining point in my life, I suppose, because from there, then I ended up, my mother ended up needing to bring us here, you know, <laughs> where we felt more stable in our home, in our town, because we had our home. Before, after that, we had to rent and be with relatives, and then six months later, move somewhere else. So after that, after my age of nine, basically finishing elementary school, fourth, fifth, sixth grade, um, we moved a lot. A lot of transition because my mother was by herself and my father would not really help <laughs> always. Even though we relied on money, even that wasn't enough. So she had to go figure out a way. Or he would come in and show up and say, oh, you guys do this or do that or move here or move there. There was a lot of scary moments. Yeah. Um, more like, um, like you're alone. Like you're isolated, like there's no one, no one's got your back maybe. And so you kind of like figure it out and hope for the best. While her home life was uncertain, school provided Elizabeth a chance to explore her identity beyond her families. School was always a good escape or like a good something different from what I have or I know. It was more, I like school, and this is going to be good for something. Uh, and it was just came from me, not so much. My, my mother maybe did second grade, you know. She would tell me how her father would tell him, you don't need to go to school. You, like, you're, you're going to learn to write to your boyfriends. No, you're not going. So, um, and I think maybe my father maybe did elementary school. I think it was just who I was. It's what I was born with. Who I, I don't think there was... There was always something about like, oh, you can learn well, or you're doing good, or you can write, you could, you learn fast. And, and they kind of just, you know, it, it was more that I would hear people reacting to who I am, more so than them telling me what you're going to be or what you can do. And so that, of course, perpetuated maybe or helped me feel like, oh, okay, I, I'm good. I can do good in school. And it was just more like I was on my own. I never really was doing homework with a parent. Yeah, it was self-learning, self-taught, self-motivated. After several years, Elizabeth's mother grew tired of struggling to make ends meet in Mexico and moved her family to California to live with their father. It was 1989, and Elizabeth was 13 years old. 
but middle school in the United States presented an entirely different set of challenges. Yeah, I was actually seventh, so at seventh grade, I finished in Mexico, and then I came here to eighth grade. My mother was the one who took me to enroll me and didn't know any English, very shy, and, and she just showed up to this middle school, and uh, they're like, they, they had to see my grades, I guess, and like, what grade am I supposed to go into and all that, and they put me in seventh grade again. I remember that. So I was back in seventh grade again, and I remember my experiences were that I, that the classes were too easy, like, well, basically like math, for example, right? Math is more of a universal language. And I recall thinking, oh my God, I'm doing like subtraction and like adding and, and what, what's this, you know? <laughs> but not knowing English, they presume you must be in the lowest level for everything. <laughs> I had a lot of that experience. Uh, but I didn't think much of it. I mean, I wasn't going to speak up or nothing. And it turned out like a couple of weeks later, they're like, oh, you're in the wrong grade. So let's change your classes all over again and uh, give you a whole new set of classes. So it was a lot of adapting, transitioning, and like not being able to speak up for yourself or know better, right? So, but and even then, the math was not that hard. <laughs> and it was a constant battle from then on to get out of those classes, really. And, or to realize, to see that, or in retrospect, to see that, oh, they were just like babysitting us and not, not really trying to teach us. So there were some classes like that. There was even courses that they, they called them sheltered classes. And, um, and it was like all the ESL kids, or like, it felt like it. So middle school was tough. Luckily, it was only one year. When Elizabeth started high school, she was hoping to escape her unstable home life. She found a distraction running on the high school cross-country team. My freshman year, I was in my PE class, and you do the mile run. Like, okay, you, today you're doing your mile run, and you know half the kids walk it, right? And, so, and I was just like, now that I, I was like, I'm going to run it. You know, 10 minutes later, whatever, I'm going to run it. So I did that, and so that's when the coach can, comes up to me and another couple other kids. Hey, you guys, you guys want to do cross-country? And, like, and I'm like, sure. I tell people it's what saved me from my parents. <laughs> Not having to go home right away, right? Because you could go to competitions after school. And so it's kind of like just school and something to do, sports, and not have to go home right away. Because it was still a lot of domestic violence. She also found a mentor in her cross-country coach, William Chavez. And he was a math teacher. And he, almost like he adopted me, like he would, he would uh, take me, we would go on runs, long-distance runs with a team. And then he, um, he would even like, he learned more about me and he would just kind of see what what's going on. I don't know. He just intuitive. But even to where he would say, let's go have lunch. I'll buy you lunch. Or, or like, I'll pick you up. We'll, I'll pick you up and take you. So he kind of really got to hear more about me maybe and see me. So, and he was um, just kind of like, I guess he had daughters that were older and, and he was just a great teacher and mentor. I mean, he... Somehow there was something about him seeing what you do, who you are, and just kind of helping me just push. Like, yeah, you can go to college. Yeah, you can take that class. Or, well, yeah, you, you do great. Or, and, but he was also helping me through the family issues going on at home. My cross-country coach definitely was the one that kept saying, you can definitely go to college. You can definitely. And I used to even think, gosh, <laughs> um, 
it would, you know, it's going to be hard. They're like, are they going to accept me? Am I going to be able to like be accepted? You know, he's like, oh yes, apply. And, and, and you know, coming from someone who's a teacher who knows the system and the universities and knows about SAT scores and all this. And he's like, oh yeah, take this test and like, and go ahead and apply. And like, and I was like, okay, okay, I'm going to do it. I realized pretty early on in high school that my way out wasn't gonna, I wasn't gonna get out by marrying someone and getting out of my house. I was gonna go away of my house by going to school. After high school, Elizabeth chose a university far away from home. Humboldt State University. I didn't know anything about the university. I just, uh, when you apply to the universities, you can apply to multiple ones. They were all part of the same system, and there was like, I don't know, 12 of them. And I just looked at the map, and it was the one that was further up north. (laughs) It was him. It was a coach that said, I'll drive you up there, and it was a 12-hour drive. He dropped me off. He took me to the university. He was the one kind of like what a parent would do to help you move into college. You know, he did that. So... My, ma- my father, I don't know, he, I don't know what he thought of it. He would call me on weekends after that because I was just like, ah. like I remember he dropped me off with my little basket of clothes and then he left. He would call me on the weekends, how are you doing and how's it going? And so he would, I would tell him about my, my coursework or my classes or what was happening. He would make fun of me because I would tell him, I got a name in chemistry and I got a name calculus. And he'd be like, see? He would tell me, see? <laughs> he would say, not too bad for a little Mexican girl, right? You can find that anywhere. It doesn't have to be your parents. That's for sure. There was a guilt about not doing for your family and doing for yourself. Like, am I being selfish? Am I... I feel bad that I'm in this place, this situation, and my siblings are not, and to still hear stories about struggles. So there was that part, but I still never felt like, I never felt like I would drop what I was doing. So, and I was glad that I was able to go away. Well, it's because you are an immigrant and you're first generation. It means that you're doing this by yourself and you better do it. No one's going to do it for you. And no one's going to hand it to you. You're going to go get it. During her first semester, Elizabeth chose to study medicine. She had always had a knack for science and math. But she also had memories of going to the emergency room with her mother and younger siblings. Because no one spoke Spanish, they struggled to receive proper care. She saw medicine as a profession where she could do something meaningful. Just like she had in high school, Elizabeth found mentors in college who encouraged her to pursue that dream. And I remember talking to my coach, Mr. Chavez, about like, no, I'm thinking about maybe like medicine. You know, I had some like nasty experiences with my mother and my younger siblings going to the emergency room when they have a fever and just feeling very like harsh, just a harsh feeling about it. And I'm like, no one who spoke Spanish. And, and so it just made me feel like, oh, you know, maybe that would be something great. I could maybe do some help. I want to do something like maybe I can do medicine. He was like, oh, yeah, you could do that. Yeah, yeah, you can do that. I found another person in college that was a lot like my coach from high school who was also an advisor, Mr. Varkey. He was a scientist, researcher, and he was like, basically, even though it wasn't really true, he said, you need to take cellular molecular biology. (laughs) And I'm like, okay. So I kind of followed his advice and very much like he saw my coursework, he saw my grades, and he was like, oh yeah, you can go, you can do it. You should definitely try medicine. 
college opened up many new opportunities for happiness in Elizabeth's life. She continued long-distance running, made new friends, and discovered a passion for traditional Mexican folk dancing. She also met her future husband. My roommate at the time was uh, working with the admissions group, like where, like orientation for the new, for the freshmen. And she comes home after one of those days and says, Liz, they called me Liz, all my friends there. You got to meet this guy. His name is Osvaldo Gonzalez. He's real smart and handsome. <laughs> and I was like, okay, whatever. <laughs> First of all, I was never supposed to meet a nice guy because my father wasn't nice. And he said, you are never going to find anyone who would like you enough to marry you. So the fact that I had a pretty handsome guy who kind of wanted to hang out with me, I was like, this is better than I ever expected. The rest is history. After graduating from college, Elizabeth started medical school at UCLA, where she married Osvaldo and had two children. Upon graduation, she began a residency at Boyle Heights, which later led her to pursue geriatrics. In 2008, she moved to Oregon with her family, where she started working at Legacy Health in Woodburn. Although successful in her career, something didn't feel right. I didn't like the seeing 80-year-olds dying on the ventilator in the ICU. I wasn't sure that was like actually the best care. So I ended up pursuing geriatrics for that reason. So um, it was more, I like the older adults and I don't like how medicine, how, how we medicalize the process of dying or illness in old age. I saw that a lot of like the older population is getting all this Western medicine that it's not really necessarily helping them. And on top of that, you're working with the insurance companies and doing what they tell you to do um, to be able to make a living. That and your employer, right? So you have to see 20 people in a day. And when you're a geriatrician and they're all over 75, it became kind of like ridiculous to me to like actually make it sustainable for my well-being. And I had to accept that. I need to be well and I need to be good to myself before I can be good to my patients. And so I didn't think that being employed as a doctor he, in this model was going to be, is in my best interest. So I just wanted to, I kept thinking of a model where because they're older patients, they need simplicity. They don't necessarily need more things done. Sometimes it's less is more for a lot of, if you're 90 years old, less is more. So I... I felt like I wasn't going to be able to implement that and really own that working for others. So it was really more about I am going to be, I am a professional. An attorney can go charge $450 an hour. An accountant can do that too. Why can't a doctor? So I was raised in that era where like you're going to be employed. You're going to go work for a hospital or you're going to work in a clinic or medical system, medical, but it wasn't always that. And it's, not, and it's not that in the rest of the world necessarily. So I just felt like I'm going to, I have value and I'm going to figure out a way to show this and to market it and to tell people about this. Today, Elizabeth operates her own business in concierge medicine, where her patients pay a monthly membership fee rather than pay expensive insurance costs. She practices medicine on her own terms in the way she believes is best for herself and her patients. I think it's it was really empowering to reach a point where I feel like I'm doing medicine the way I want to do medicine. And it's also giving me space to explore 
the things that I've always kind of believed in that I couldn't really apply because you're too busy or you're just supposed to do it one way. So I'm relearning. I'm going back to like exploring things that I'm always interested. I've always loved like also the ancient medicine, traditional medicines that are still useful now and have a lot. And there's a lot of wisdom that we've kind of just put on the side. So it's definitely, I feel like I've arrived at a place of like more manifesting what I can do and be really content with. Elizabeth has come a long way to get where she is now, meaning a place of fulfillment with who she is and what she is doing. But people still ask her where she's from. My daughter insisted that we get our DNA done, and I kept telling her why. It was eye-opening to me in that they refer to your Mexican side as Native American, because it is Native American. And I hadn't, and, I, and then when you think about Mexico and U.S. is not, they're not very far from each other. They're part of the same continent. They are both North America, right? Because Central America is south of Mexico. And so to see that, like, they show you your Native American side and it's like in this place and it's right in the state of Jalisco, really. And it's about 40%. It's really fascinating to see that how much we are really not immigrants in that sense, and that really the Anglo or the mainstream culture is really the immigrant. To think about the England coming to the Americas, and if you are 100% from England, your descendants are, then you immigrated way later from my descendants from the Americas, you know? So it's really empowering in that sense. I mean, I, when people, I know what people mean when they ask me, where are you from? And I tell them I'm from North America. So I, I think we all need, can own that. Over the years, I've come to realize that I am from here and that a lot of the American story is the immigrant story. And... Um, I think it's about being your true self and not being apologetic for who you are. Many Roads to Here is a production of The Immigrant Story in collaboration with Portland Radio Project. This episode was written by Stephanie Valance and Emily Denny. Our audio editing was done by Kent Randalls, assisted by Gordon Graham. The original interview was conducted in winter 2020 by Brittany Canobraseño. Our executive producer is the tenacious Sankar Raman. Many Roads to Hear is expanding. We're looking for radio producers, especially those from immigrant communities or communities of color, to join our team. We're all volunteer for now, but we've got dreams. 
Please email mrh at theimmigrantstory.org for more information. For more stories, visit theimmigrantstory.org backslash many roads. Listen live at prp.fm or stream us wherever you get your podcasts. Mm-hmm.